thought that passage would work real well for our lesson text tonight since we're discussing questions and answers. One of the reasons why we still have questions and answers these days is because the preacher is not able to do like the Lord did. When he gave an answer, people said, that's a good answer. I'm not going to ask anymore. I wish that I could be able to answer these questions such that uh, everyone would say, now that makes sense, I'm going to accept that. But the reason why we have questions like this sometimes is because people are curious and they want to know things. And uh, I will tell you that my plans are the first Sunday of each month to have a question and answer time for our Sunday evening sermon. But I will tell you that next Sunday night's lesson is going to be on a little more lengthy idea, so I couldn't do it as a question and answer tonight. We're going to talk about specifically dual fulfillment of prophecy. Is that what the Bible teaches? Uh, That was a question that was asked, but it will require a whole lesson by itself. And then two weeks from tonight, Lord willing, we will talk about translations of the Bible. That's also a question that several have asked, but will need to be uh, dealt with in a complete lesson. But tonight, I want to begin by pointing out there is a place for questions. In fact, if you go through the Bible, you will notice not only did our Lord, but a number of other people ask questions. And some of them were very practical and very pertinent to the situation in which they were in. Several of these questions that have been asked deserve a well-reasoned answer, which means more than just simply saying yes or no. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctifying your hearts, Christ Jesus as Lord, being ready always to give an answer to every man that asks the reason of hope that is within you, yet with meekness and fear. We ought to be the kind of people ready to give an answer that comes from God's Word. I will tell you there are really three types of questions that are to be dealt with. The first one is that of those that are textual. What does a passage mean? And I do have some of those questions that will be in a future lesson about what does this passage teach? What is it referring to? And particularly some of them come from the Old Testament. Then there are topical studies or topical questions about the aspect of some doctrine. And that will be our first question tonight. We'll be relating to a topical issue. And then finally, those that are practical. How to apply the Bible to a situation that you and I are facing in life. And that will be our second question tonight as we deal with a specific issue. People really want to know How do I take God's Word and apply it to different situations in my life? And so tonight, we're going to begin with the first of two questions. The first will be, will you explain the Trinity? Where does that term come from? And pointing out, it is not in the Bible. The second question is very simple. Is social media, particularly Facebook, a tool of the devil. And uh, that's the way the question was phrased, and so that's the reason why I'm going to deal with it in that fashion. Let's talk about the Trinity for just a moment. And to do so, I need to begin with some definitions so that we understand 
what it is we're talking about. The term Trinity, I will go ahead and tell you, is not found in the Bible. And someone says immediately, okay, I, I just don't agree with it then. You might be interested to know that the word Bible does not appear in the Bible. There are a number of words of things that we discuss that may not appear in the Bible. The question is, does the teaching appear there? And the Trinity means that there are three persons in the Godhead, all possessing the single essence, that is the divine nature, but are three separate persons. Now, I'm going to have to explain that in a little bit more detail in just a moment, the difference between nature and person. A second definition is Unitarianism. And the root word of it is unity, oneness. And that's believed that there is just but one person in the Godhead, God, and thus Jesus, though he was a great moral man, and maybe even supernatural, but is not God and should not be worshipped as God. A third thing is what is called oneness or modalism. And there are some various religious groups who hold this. They believe there is one God who manifests himself in three different ways. For instance, there's times when God would manifest himself as a father. Then there are times when God would manifest himself as a son. And then there are times when God will manifest himself as a spirit. Much of this goes back to a man by the name of Arius. He was a man who was a priest, Catholic priest, who lived and taught in Alexandria, Egypt. He taught that God the Father and Jesus did not have the same substance. That is, they were not of the same essence. And that there was a time when Jesus did not exist that Jesus was a created being. And so that is often called Arianism. Now here's the difficulty. How can there be three persons of one substance, of one nature, and if one is not careful, you'll end up with three different gods? And so I want to try to take a few minutes to deal now with some of this. There was a chart that was developed many years ago. It's certainly not original with me. In fact, I chose this copy to be able to put on the screen. But if you'll notice that you have at the Father, the upper left-hand corner, the Son, the upper right-hand corner, and then you have the Holy Spirit at the bottom. You have each of them and it's connected to the center circle, which says God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But if you will notice, there's a line connecting each of the three that says the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. All of those are true statements and can be proven from Scripture. What we begin with is the very important element that Jesus was and is God. How can I prove that? In John 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or I can go to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. The writer of the book of Hebrews says simply, 
But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Notice how he talks about the Son sitting on his throne and his being God. But yet the Bible does point out that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are distinct. That is, they are separate in one sense from one another. Let me explain. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus is giving the great commission. He's sending the apostles out on their um, journey to go out and preach the gospel to everybody. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice Jesus himself talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Notice all three of those mentioned there. John 14 and verse 16. Here's Jesus saying, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper, helper, or if you're reading the King James American Standard, comforter, that he may abide with you forever. I want you to notice it's not very difficult. Jesus says, I will pray. Pray to whom? The Father. So you know you have two distinct ones, Jesus praying and the Father listening, but then it says, he will send... You another. The another refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit. So you have all three mentioned there. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If you'll just notice very simply, you have Jesus who's just come up from the water, you have the voice of the Father coming from heaven, and you have the Spirit descending. You have all three distinct from one another in this passage. But I think it's also important to understand that Jesus was equal with God. That is, is that he and the Father were on the same plane. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is trying to explain what Jesus did in coming to this earth. What he gave up when he came to this earth. And he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. You see, he was equal with him. In John 5 and verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because not only he broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Now, I will remind you, 
that Jesus didn't break the Sabbath. They accused him of that. But what Jesus did say that God was his father and that made him equal. But that brings us to what is the more critical part. And that is, are, of the, are each of the members of the Godhead of the same essence? That is, do they all possess the same nature? Now, I thought it was well stated that nature is what you are, person is who you are. For instance, by nature, I'm a man. That is a human being. I possess the characteristics of a human being. Not only do we walk and we talk, do we communicate, but we have a sense of oughtness. We have a sense of conscience. We have a sense of right versus wrong that's not a part of the animal kingdom. We are, in real terms, made in the image of God. So we possess human characteristics. And you know, the Bible talks about that He was in heaven with the Father but became flesh, dwelt among men. John chapter 1, verses 7 and following there. But when I go to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, right after he says that God has spoken unto us in these last days by his Son, he says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. You see, God the Father and God Jesus possess the same nature as one another. Yet God is clearly one. That is, God acts as one. God is one. Let me give you a few passages. Perhaps the clearest is found in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord our God is one. That means that God the Father... God the Son and God the Spirit act as one. And you say, well, I don't get that. Let me give you one of the easiest illustrations from the Old Testament. Genesis 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. Did you notice the plural, us and our, and God said, let us make man in our image. God acts as one. And God possesses the nature, the essence of Godhood. Romans 1 and verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, or Godhood, if you will, so that they are without excuse. In Colossians 1 and verse 9, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So you see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all three. Hence the Trinity. The word Trinity indicates three. And so it's talking about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three being distinct and divine, and that is taught in the Scriptures. But now I have been asked a couple of other whatabouts. What about the Bible teaching that Jesus was subject to 
the Father. Does that mean that He is somehow less than the Father in the sense of His nature? And the answer is no. It was His role, not His nature. That is, Jesus willingly submitted Himself to the Father. Let me illustrate that to you in our terms. You have a husband and wife. In the Bible teaching, the husband is the head of the house, but that does not mean that he having that role is more valuable or different in nature than his wife. Because, Galatians 3, verses 26 and following, for you are all one, and then he, he explains, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female. It's a difference in role, but it's not a difference in nature. And then the question has been asked, what about the Jehovah's Witnesses translation? Some of you may have had them come knock at your door and say, oh, the Bible doesn't teach that there's three in the Godhead. Because John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and then the New World Translation says, And the Word was a God, spelled with a little g. And the truth is, that's a mistranslation. And uh, no reputable Greek scholar anywhere would suggest that that's a proper translation. I hope that answered the question. Question number two, now a practical one. I want to talk about the prominence of social media. I think it may shock you. I want to talk about the problems of it and then the potential. Some of you in the audience, I'm sure, do not use the computer. You do not use Internet. And uh, if you don't, God bless you. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like a lot of other things. I will explain to you what it is. It is social media is an avenue for people to interact with one another using their electronic devices. That is their computers, their smartphones, their tablets. In other words, anything that connects to the internet, they can be able to use social media to interact with one another. Now, Pew Research Center does surveys on how much people do with certain things. 74% of the people using the Internet are using social media. That's three-fourths. 89% of those 18 to 29 are using it. Folks, that's just about everybody. Now, if you're 60 years old, you may say, I am not interested in that. I have no need of that. But I guarantee your children, your grandchildren know something about it. And I guarantee you that they are interacting on it. And 71% are using Facebook. And you can say, well, I don't even know what Facebook is. I'll tell you, it was rather humorous a few months ago when the Geico commercial came out with this elderly lady, and she's taken all of her photos, and she said, I put my pictures on my wall. And one of the ladies said, no, no, no. And she said, I'll unfriend you. And she said, that's not the way it works. Facebook is a place where people are able to put photographs and things that people can read, and it's a statement they're making themselves, or photos that they're putting out for others to see. Now, here's something that might shock you. Facebook 
publishes that each user spends approximately 55 minutes per day on Facebook. Some of you are using it a whole lot more because I'm not using it that much. But I will tell you that that tells you what kind of impact, what kind of prominence it has in our society. That there are many people spending an hour or more a day either reading or posting on it. But let's talk about some problems. Number one is language. Often, people will use mean, harsh, abusive, vulgar, and profane language on Facebook. And you'd say, somebody ought to stop that. Well, you can report it. But the people who promote it many times are as wicked and vile and abusive and ugly as anybody you want to meet. So don't expect a lot of sympathy when you say these four-letter words, offend me. I will tell you that when I go to the Bible, I can find some parallels, if you will. Because what I have observed many times is people, if they can hide behind a keyboard or they can hide somewhere where they don't have to face someone, they'll say almost anything about them or someone else. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, listen to verses 10 and 11. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let a person, such a person, consider this, that what we are in words by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Paul says, I don't write one thing and then say another. And I would suggest to you that many people would say things on Facebook that they would never say to someone's face and be that abusive. When you go to Psalms 59, David's talking about the way his enemies talk about him and the kind of way they act. And I thought this was very applicable he said, at evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? You see, people have talked like this for a long time. And as long as they feel that there's no one who hears to the point that they are accountable to them, you see, here's a problem. People think they can put anything on Facebook and not be accountable. In Ephesians 4, verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers? You see, he says, don't say anything that is corrupt. What you do is make sure that what you say is to edify and encourage those who hear. Chapter 5, verse 4, he, he doesn't leave the thing. He says, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, rather the giving of thanks. No Christian should ever post something ungodly on Facebook. Colossians 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace. Season with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Do I get frustrated? Absolutely I do. But do you know what? It's 
heart of self-control that says, I don't just say anything that pops into my head. Because once you say it, you can't reclaim those words. Now here's a passage which is very applicable. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 37. Let me tell you the context. These people have been attributing the miracles that Jesus was performing to the devil. And Jesus is going to deal with their heart problem. He says, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in your heart is what's going to come out in your voice and it will come out in what you say. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every word, idle men, or every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Folks, I'd hate to know that I had to stand before God and say some of the things that some of our brethren have said. Did you hear me say? Some of our brethren have said. I'm not even talking about the ungodly people of the world. Another problem is not only the words, the language that is used, but also the visual. For instance, often indecent, immodest photos are showing up on the pages of people who are supposed to be members of the Lord's church. I'm going to, I could embarrass some tonight. I could actually take some of the members here and put some of your photos up on the screen, and I guarantee you, I am not just, you know, joshing. I guarantee you, if I put your photos up on the screen, you would hold your head in shame. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Some do not realize that once those photos go up, they're there. Oh, yes, you can say, well, I'm going to delete them. They're still available somewhere. Do you want your children, your grandchildren to see how you were dressed? More seriously, do you want God to see that? Some of the things on Facebook promotes ungodliness as well. It may be that people are sharing stuff that has profanity in it. They wouldn't use the terms, but they'll share it. Some people are sharing things written by false teachers. Let me be blunt. Let me be direct. Joyce Meyer is a woman preacher. I see brothers and sisters in Christ sharing her message. Joel Olstein is a false teacher. Never met a sin he didn't like. At least you don't ever hear him condemn one. And yet some of our brethren will share Joel Olstein's messages. Brethren, you need to ask the question, what does the scripture say on In Ephesians 5 and verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them or expose them. 
In 2 John 9 through 11, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes unto you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So some of you right now are saying, now I see why the question come up. Is Facebook from the devil? Is Facebook evil? If it is, then why are you on it? Number three is the potential. You see, just like the television, just like anything else, there's the potential for good on Facebook. There's some, there's some benefits for godly people. Let me explain to you. You can learn the needs of other people and be able to offer some encouragement and support for them. Sometimes people in their family have had a tragedy. And for a way to get the message out quickly to a large number of people, they may post it on Facebook. And prayers are usually offered within minutes for those going through difficult times. It may be that as we go to the Bible, Jesus or Paul says, Philippians 2, 4, Look, each of you look out not only for his own interest, but the interest of others. It makes it a, a wonderful place to be able to see and know what other people are suffering. And then Galatians 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's a great place to share positive news about the church. A lot of our missionary friends are in foreign and difficult places. And they need a message of encouragement. They've had something good and they want to share that news. Acts chapter 14 verse 27 is just an example. Now when they had come together and gathered to church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. I've learned about a lot of good work because of our brethren on things like Facebook. But let me offer you one more. And that is to share God's word in sermon and song. I checked just before services. The Sunday night lesson two weeks ago, there's 177 people listened to it on Facebook. That's not at the church's website. On Facebook, the lesson, the worldly church two Sunday nights ago, 177 people have listened to it there. Last Sunday morning sermon... There's already been 52 people listen to it on Facebook. You say, oh, you mean that's an opportunity where you might be able to, for someone in a country where you can't go preach that can get on Facebook and actually see the lesson and be able to hear it? Yes, they can. You see, there's, there's potential for good. The devil wants to take something and use it for evil, but we can take it and we can use it for good. So is Facebook of the devil? No, it's just a tool. And the devil can use us and he can use it as a means of evil or he can, we can use it for God and for a means of good. Let me tie all this together now. Of all the questions that a person might be able to ask, there's one question that always comes to the very top. And that is the question, what must I do to be saved? 
In Acts 16 and verse 30, it was the Philippian jailer who rushed in to Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It was the people on the day of Pentecost when Peter and the eleven had stood up and preached the message who said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The message that was given to them, Acts 16 verse 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in your house and you shall be saved. In Acts 2 and verse 38, the answer was, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You see, that's an answer to a question that is extremely important. You may not have asked that question, but you've gotten the answer. You've gotten God's word on it. And so tonight, if you're not a Christian, we're going to sing this invitation song. And we're going to encourage you to come forward. If you'll come sit on one of the front seats, we'll assist you tonight in becoming a New Testament Christian. If you say, I don't know enough. We'll stay. We'll we'll discuss God's Word with you. We'll provide for you that encouragement. And if you're a Christian and you need to be restored to faithfulness, what better time than now? And would you come as we stand and sing?